101 with Santa. Yeah. I have those two. I have a lot of things to fiddle with on my desk. Like I, I even got like. Show me. Oh, <laughs> I got. What's that? Is it a Gundam? Got a Gundam, yeah. Uh-huh, I got a uh-huh. few of those. Uh, uh-huh. I always have about two sets of dice on me. Uh-huh. Just in case, and you'd be surprised how often it's like, oh, yeah. You... Do you have any dice? Could you do a quick roll? I'm like. <laughs> I, I, I shouldn't be surprised. And ooh, I've lost my camera. Sorry. Yeah, no worries. What I get for pulling things around on my desk. It's so <laughs> junk. And that's the smaller bag of dice. <laughs> yep. I also have my. I always keep the pinks. For some reason, I am so lucky when rolling these. When with any other dice, I, I'm horrible. Uh, as as weird as it sounds, I know it's all in my head. But these mm. dice, I've always succeeded with. So I only... Ah, well, interesting. Here we go. Anecdote number one. Um, of 528. About dice. About D6s. Yeah. Uh, I read something fantastic on Daka Daka years ago yeah. now. About a guy who basically... He, he taught engineering, as, yeah. as I recall it was. Uh, so we had a bunch of you know grad students. And he said, all right, we're going to do some stuff with probability. We're going to roll lots and lots of dice together. Mm-hmm. Because he was actually, you know, uh, a 40k tournament player. He, yeah. he was just interested. So we got bucketfuls of the um, standard GW uh, D6, 12 mils, I think they are. Um, like thousands of them in shaker <laughs> tables and got them to result, record the results. And he also did it with a number of other sort of like different makes of dice. And what he found was the GW ones got about 23% ones. Now, if you know your mathematics, you would know that it should be about 16%. Yeah. However, the casino dice that he was using, uh, they, they got kind of bang on the line for about 16%. Uh, and he did various other ones like rounded corners, square corners, all this sort of stuff. Casino dice have square. Um, mm-hmm. so, so I read this with like, sort of like, oh, uh, kind of mounting horror, and I've not used those kind of D6s <laughs> since. And I have to say, I feel like my results have been suspiciously better. So beware of what dice you actually use, uh, I think is the the bottom line of this story. That, I'm going to blame shapes, that on my Certain bad weights. Mm. That is... <laughs> well, you can do that too, yes. <laughs> that is very interesting. I... Now I have someone to blame whenever I roll once. <laughs> it's just mm. the dice. You can blame the man keeping you down. <laughs> oh. Forcing you to buy more expensive bespoke dice, you see. <sighs> your camera's gone out of focus, by the way. You oh, also did something to your camera, I think, in that scrabbling around for things on our desk. Uh, I find with uh, how this program works is sometimes you'll have a delay on the image, but it records okay. it without any delay. It's just it does that in order to uh, limit bandwidth so that you don't have, um, so that the voices and the audio come out clearer in the end. Right. If you know what I it mean. It cares more about the audio, is what it yeah. comes down to. Oh, that's fine. Yeah. There's no and delay. The... There's no delay. You're just slightly out of focus, but it oh, might okay. be just like giving me a bit of a, as you say, yeah. a small bandwidth image from your end at the moment. Yeah, it might just be. Always weird. Uh, gotta love technology. But uh, here, I'll start the intro since. Uh, 
Hello, RP people. Welcome back to another episode of Role Playing as Smart People, the podcast where we tend to know what we're talking about when it comes to all things tabletop. My name is Santa, and thanks for tuning in. Joining me today, I have Andy freaking Chambers. Now, if you don't know who Andy Chambers is, it's the guy on the screen right there, of course, but <laughs> he's done so much. And again, not trying to butter you up like in the intro, but seriously, thank you for coming on. Thank you very much. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for asking me to come on today. Uh, social media I'm bad at, so talking to people is the, the best way I can actually get my ancient, ancient face out there these days. Come on, you got a, such a pretty mug, don't even worry. <laughs> <laughs> 33 years this year, 33 years I've been working professionally as a game designer. So if it feels like I've been around for a while, that's why. That is an insane amount of time. So how did how did you first get involved in uh, the tabletop hobby as a whole? Um, way, way back. Okay. Back through time. 70s. Uh, my dad used to be into building like balsa models of mm -hmm. aircraft. Uh, big ones. Yeah. Like 112th scale, stuff like that. Uh, flyable as well. Um. And through that, he was kind of interested in modeling in general. And I was kind of interested in that sort of stuff too. I, I love my little airfix figures and stuff like that. Uh, that you used to get then play sets of like uh, British commandos versus German badly molded guys. <laughs> and because of that, he bought, started buying me a subscription to a military modeling magazine, uh, oh. which, was, which was a very kind of like pipe and tweed kind of a publication. Uh, which had a lot about sort of like properly painting your Napoleonic hussars and things like that, you know, in, in big scales as figurines and so forth. But there was some war games material in it as well, um, where people would do a battle report every now and again about a mm -hmm. scenario they did of like, you know, Viking raiders coming along and raiding the Saxons or something like that. And it really kind of spurred my interest a lot. And also, just at that time, that you start to see some adverts for science fiction and fantasy figures. Not a lot at all, <laughs> but kind of in the classified ads, uh, you know, there'd be some Medusas and stuff like that in there. And it was starting to creep in and D&D &D was starting to creep in as well. So it was just starting to pick up as a more than just a, a complete aside into Jason and the Argonauts or something like that. The fantasy was a thing. Mm -hmm. uh, Valley of the Four Winds and all stuff like that started to come out. So... I kind of started getting drawn into it that way. And at the time, there were a few different war game shops in Nottingham, hmm. uh, including one called Asgard Miniatures. And um, I took my, my little young ass down there uh, and just kind of got really drawn into it there because it was like spaceships and sci-fi mm -hmm. and oh, coolness, you know. Yeah. Um, and as a kid growing up, I'd, I'd always been really excited by things like Captain Scarlet and Thunderbirds that you get on British TV loved all the vehicles and stuff like that so that plus world war ii between the two of them kind of propelled me forward uh, and eventually i ended up getting a job through people i knew who you know went to the asgard war games club and stuff like that some of them worked at citadel as well there, there was a fair mm. amount of cross-pollination there i mean jess goodwood was miniature designer at asgard miniatures at the time i was there and um i got a job in mail order uh, working for games workshop back in the late 80s uh, and did a couple of stints there like over Christmas periods because they, yeah. they obviously had a lot of mail order on 
you know, and that was working out in the factory in Eastwood. Um, but again, I got to know people, some of the people from there actually transitioned to go and work in the studio. Uh, not me. Um, I went and smashed myself up in a motorcycle accident and got laid up for a year. Oh. And at the end of that, I really, over the course of that, I actually wrote two sets of War Games rules and painted about three armies. Um, and by the end of it, I really wanted to do something. And mm. I started getting into um, 40k. I started before that, I started getting into 40k, like Rogue Trader. And about the time I'd just about recovered and I was back on my feet again, I'd started getting into um, Adeptus Titanicus, which I found fascinating, this like game in a box. Because yeah. everything before that, you know, you bought a book or a booklet, it usually mm -hmm. was like little thin pamphlet sort of thing for rules, or occasionally you get big, big chunky books. But role-playing had, had advanced a lot faster. Yeah. Because D&D had become big news and people were doing big role-playing books and stuff like that. But the tabletop wargaming stuff was still just running around in that period. So the idea of a game in a box where you've got the rules, you've got templates, dice, miniatures, yeah. different weapons for your miniatures, buildings, was amazing to me. Absolutely amazing. Uh, I loved it. So really got into playing that a lot. And I started buying metal stuff that was coming out for it from Games Workshop as well, like blisters of you know, Baneblade tanks or what have you, mm. and paying them up. And I had these blisters of... Like little titans, they were marked as being one-man titans, but there were no rules for them. And yeah. you know, I was looking at White Dwarf, and they were pretty good about putting rules for stuff in White Dwarf when mm. things came out. That's one of the reasons I liked them. It's like, huh. so, and I heard why there were no rules for one-man titans, and it was because Jervis Johnson, who designed the Depths of Titanicus, had gone sabbatical. I got to learn the word sabbatical at that point for six months. Yeah. Which means going and doing something else for a while. Uh, so they had nobody to write the rules. I was like, huh. With, you know, the confidence of youth. Oh, I understand the rules. And I'd, I'd written, I'd been kind of like adep adapting sets of rules and like writing my own and playing about with that sort of stuff for years by that point, despite my youth. Mm. So I wrote an article um, in the style of White Dwarf. So it had a little bit of background and some little quotes in it and all this sort of stuff and did stats for them. You know, in the system that I already knew, so they'd work with the existing models yeah. that were in the range, and and so submitted it. Heard nothing for a little while, and eventually they called me in and into the studio, which was in the middle of Nottingham at the time in Enfield Chambers. And they sort of said, "Well, oh, I quite like your article. You know, why don't you come in for a couple of weeks and you know finish your article up here, and we'll see how you get along." And I was like, "All right." You don't need to ask me twice. And I was in, and I tried to be as useful as possible. <laughs> Very much so. And the first lesson I got got when I landed there, which is an important one in professional games design, was that my article went straight in the bin. Oh. Uh, because, well, for one, actually day one, when I first arrived at my desk, Jervis Johnson was back, and I was like, oh, well, that's me done then, isn't it? <laughs> um, so, I, you know, he's literally, like, across the across the desk from me. And um, the second one was that they had a load of background and stuff like that for these one-man titans. Not one-man titans, knights, as we know them now. Yeah. Night worlds, night houses, all that stuff. They had all that background, they just didn't have the rule component to go with it, because James yeah. hadn't been there, but they'd been able to do all the rest of it. So they basically just interested me to do the rule component of that and a bit of the sort of like connecty bits. Yeah. 
because you get like pure background pure story and stuff like that you know you get pure rules and sometimes you need a little bit of a connection between mm-hmm. the two of them so i did that and but then was immediately glitched deluge with a ton of other stuff to do for white dwarf for epic you know more tanks uh we did like a an organizational system for like building your own companies that would like later see full uh full reign in Space Marine and Space Marine Second Edition when Rick did yeah. those. So and yeah, two weeks sort of turned into three months, turned into six months, turned into a year. <laughs> um, at which point they were sort of like, "Well, I, I guess yeah, you really do have a job, don't you?" <laughs> I can't even remember what the name of my position was when I was first taken on writer or something like that. I think. That um, is... And yeah, and I just tried to be as useful as possible, and I ended up taking photos as well. Oh, weirdly. Um, I had, when I went to school, I did graphic design, um, like high national diploma. I never went to college, as Americans yeah. call it, at university here. So I had a bit of basic grounding in like cameras and stuff like that. Um, the guy they had taking photographs at the time for White Dwarf, Chris Colston, lovely guy. But at the time, he was not a gamer. So yeah. he'd set up sort of like nice, moody-looking scenario sort of shots, um, but with the miniatures all scattered about and flock in all of their bases very carefully to make it all look as realistic as possible. And that was nice and all, but A, they needed a lot more photographs doing than that. It was taking yeah. too long. And B, they kind of wanted to have like shots of games in progress because they never mm. looked like a game in progress. They looked like a shot of a bunch of miniatures on a nice background with some nice trees or what have you. I was like, all right, I can do that. Once again, confidence of youth. And just piled in and I told you about anecdotes, didn't I? Um, <laughs> back then, no digital photography, folks. Try and imagine a world without digital f- photography at all for a moment because it didn't exist. So we were literally using, like, you know, the big bellows-type cameras you see in the old, <laughs> oldie-worldie westerns. That was the kind of camera you'd use to get a, a good, sort of decent exposure. Mm-hmm. And they're called plate cameras because you can slide in a photographic plate at the back, expose the film, take your, take your snap, big flash things to go off as well, blind you every time. <laughs> and, and then go off and process it, seriously, process the photograph yeah. and then turn it into a bromide that can then be attached onto the paste-up sheets that you send off to go and get printed. Paste-up. Fuzzy felting, as it was called at the time. So all of that. So I was involved in that process and did most of the photography in White Dwarf for about two or three years. Oh wow! That well, is... try to track in other people to do it as quickly as possible because it was an onerous task, I can tell you. That is. So Ooh. that's that a really something cool everybody story. had to learn. <laughs> oh no doubt, that is so cool. Uh, so like when I when I was listening, um it sound it sounds like you've actually for a lot of your uh projects that you do even after uh you worked with Games Workshop, it sounds like a lot of them were interests that you even had when you're younger. Like you mentioned uh you love vehicles and you've done quite a few well, you've done a few vehicle games, spaceship especially spaceship games. games. In yeah. yeah, like yes, yeah, um, so I have a great weakness for those. I know, and like, 
I, I, I remember when I was uh, looking at models for Drop Fleet Commander and mm. I saw your name on it. I was like, I I shouldn't be surprised because this is a lot like <laughs> one of your other games. But like, oh, my God, like that. That's why it's so kind of like cool and how you feel like it's actually. I, I, I thought it was so neat how you would start off in high orbit you could go down into was it a sub orbit where you're still up high it's low orbit and then atmosphere yeah you've got like three grades of it uh yeah because it's nice and focused drop zone commander uh drop fleet commander i should say drop zone commander's the ground game yes it is um and because they'd already done drop zone itself they, they had this whole thing about um, having lots of different transports coming in, dropping off tanks and men and mm. all this sort of stuff into the midst of the city. So they, they kind of had that bit going on. And it was, all right, so if we scope out further from that, what do we do? And having already done Battlefleet Gothic at Games Workshop, one of my favorite things I've done. I, um, I was keen to do another spaceship game. <laughs> 3D <laughs> print, my friend. Uh, has the answer to all your woes now. Seriously, that's, it's had, so it's been a delight for me because I've seen so much BFG stuff over the last three or four years in particular oh, really? as it's become possible for people just to, yeah, because they can just 3D print their own fleets. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's just, and that's basically caused a sort of resurgence of interest in it in general as people can have the fleet they always wanted to have or have got their old fleet back out again. And all that sort of stuff. <laughs> Um, which is great to see, and it's still an ongoing thing. I'm delighted people still play it. Um, some people have you know updated the rules. There's a bit of a split, as there always is in communities between sort of <laughs> like the the ones where the players have kind of like changed it themselves and put in some house rules and, and maybe actually even mm-hmm. reconfigured some parts of the game, which is fair enough. And the ones who are like, no, we will play it as it was written, as it was meant to be with the, the books from the mountain. The purists, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is uh, go purists. That's just part of me, but actually, go guys fixing the game that was probably broken in ways that you didn't like. So go for it. Says the other part of me. So it's it's really nice to see all that going on. And yeah, Drop Fleet was kind of an opportunity to go back to the well in a way and mm. do another spaceship game because I thought a lot about doing spaceship games. Obviously, after doing Battlefleet mm. Gothic, and the thing that had always kind of bothered me was. They're not 3D. Spaceship games aren't 3D. Yeah. And if you want to make them 3D, then it becomes, well, a whole extra dimension you have to worry about. And mm-hmm. the question that I asked myself at the time about Battlefleet Gothic is like, what do you get for it? What comes out of it? And really, it was a difference in firing angles. It was all I could come up with, really, for Battlefleet Gothic. And yeah. I was like, it's not enough, is it? Not really. Because <laughs> then you get into like all kind of rollover and all this sort of stuff, and it's your models don't and yeah so i just just decided to treat it just like battle of jutland which was always in the back of my head it was space battle of jutland and not worry about 3d <laughs> but come along to drop fleet and and 3d actually was kind of implicit to the environment because what mm-hmm. you always cared about was getting down to the planet um and if you've got something static like that you have a planet surface that a you need to get down to and b you can crash into (laughs) then you've got a basis for building in like a basic 3d mechanic which actually works quite well in draft i was very pleased with the way it came out yeah um because you also get the the atmosphere being this sort of like soup down at the bottom that ships can't really go into but some can 
the atmospheric ones can get in there and go hide <laughs> in the atmosphere and pop back out and all this sort yeah. of stuff. So it's got some interesting dynamics just straight off the bat, which do actually relate to Drop Zone Commander. So yeah, it was very smug about that one. <laughs> that that one was definitely um, what's the word I'm looking for? It it felt the most realistic, I think, out of. Like, because I've read a few different, like, space games and all that, because, again, space combat is the coolest thing on the planet, and outside the planet, I guess. Uh, And I, yeah, and I remember, like, looking at the rules and then watching some videos on YouTube of people playing, and I was like, this is just so neat, because you could theoretically have both games playing at the same time in a technical sense. Mm. It It would be a very, very big game. But it would be a yes. really thematic game that I feel like would uh, allow for a sense of vicarity that most games would not really be able to do. Like, you would feel like the commander. Yes. But, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And that, that that's one of the nice things to be able to do is to, I don't know, having a couple of different scale games like that and being able to interrelate them, mm-hmm. um, no matter how tenuously... It's just a fun idea, and it's unlikely that you'll actually play a game like that, except in you know maybe a big environment like a show or a tournament or something mm-hmm. like that. But just the idea that you could, oh yeah, has got value in and of itself, I think. And and that's one of the things Games Workshop's missing a little bit these days. I feel like because doing all that working like Space Marine and Epic and Adeptus Titanicus gave, mm-hmm. gave this like massive grounding that everything else could grow up from, and yeah. uh, it always felt it like benefited from making the world a lot larger and the universe a lot larger on that kind of level. And that's why I feel the same way about spaceship games in general. It's like if you're gonna have a sci fi game, you should really have some sort of some sort of spaceship game. <laughs> it's supposed yeah. to be sci fi, man. You know, how how does it all interrelate? Are they giant, massive spaceships or are they tiny little fighters? What what's going on, you know? Yeah. What, and what's just... the flavour of your sci fi? trying to almost like capture that feel into the game. No, I 100% get you on that. Um, another mm. one that I noticed you were talking about how you like used to build or and same with your father, uh, all the like, you know, the World War kind of vehicles and all that was that kind of almost the inspiration you mm-hmm. also had for bolt action. Um, you worked on that one too. And I feel like that almost fits I did in supplemental material for bolt uh, action. I mean, Credit where credit's due, that's Rick Priestley and uh, Alessio Cavatori wrote the core game, Bolt mm-hmm. Action. What you're seeing there is is all little boys of a certain age, uh, my age, and a little bit younger as yeah. well, and a little bit older, did get a, a steady diet of World War II when we were young, um, because it wasn't that long ago, mm-hmm. scarily enough. You know, I was born in 1966. So World War II had been over for precisely 21 years at that time. So uh, a lot of the adventure stories and drama even tended to be set in World War II. And there were a lot of toys and kits and so on uh, that were around when I was growing up. So we all had an interest to some extent in World Mm -hmm. War II, and specifically in Airfix kits, because they were everywhere when we were kids. They were in toy shops, which was important definition because while there were a few model shops around there they were a rare beast but toy shops you know toy shops were all over so we all tended to get exposed to it a lot and so we we all had this common connector and rick and alessio was a guy out from their games workshop days you know especially in in company of john's talent 
they were all really passionate about airfix kits and World War II and so on, and they wanted to remake the kind of game that we used to play with uh, the old airfix battles rules back in the day when we were nippers. Um, but, you know, with a more modern game system, scalable, with things that they'd learned along the way about how you do big scalable systems so they can cover all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And so a, a very kind of modern take on how to do a World War Two game. But I mean, it, it's still very much uh, the World War Two game of the movie sort of a thing, uh, as anybody will be great pains to tell you about bolt actions it's not that realistic <laughs> but the thing is you you can run around and get your british commandos against your germans you know and raid the atlantic wall emplacement yeah. uh, using bolt action and you can do the battle of kursk with if you've got enough russian tanks anyway oh, that's cool. um at the same time with the system i mean it'll clunk just like all systems clunk when you do a certain amount with them but it can take <laughs> it it can do it and it's got some really nice little mechanisms in it as well. So it's a good system. And yeah, um, when I moved back from the US after working at Blizzard uh, and you know landed back in Nottingham, I looked up uh, John Stollard and Rick. And actually, no, it was Alessio who came and looked me up first and found me. Because I was, I was freelancing by that time and I was kind of casting about for work. And Alessio came and said, well, we're doing bolt action. We've got this game. He ran me through a few games with him. It was, like, it was fun. Um, but we're doing army books, you know, like the old codexes and stuff and Warhammer army books. We used to do at games workshop. So I was like, all right, I can do that. <laughs> what do you need? And he was like, well, we've kept it specially for you. He said, we want you to do the Soviet Union book. Is they they all knew that I was a a huge Soviets fan uh, from back at games workshop. Yeah. That is so. They actually waited for you to get back specifically for that. Uh, It it just sort of lined up nicely for them. (laughs) What that is 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 me. You can see me somewhere in the foreground in the black leather jacket, (laughs) standing in front of uh, it's a IS two. Oh, wow! millimeter gun, World War Two tank. (laughs) That's huge. Absolutely enormous things. Enormous things. So I've been like, wow. I can't really get too excited by Sherman tanks anymore when you get something like that around. Um, oh, it's crazy. So yeah, it just lined up well for them. And sorry. Yeah, no, go sorry, ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, just it's always say, amazing to see those tanks in person. And it's like, you see like yeah. them in pictures and all that. You're like, oh yeah, you know, that's a big vehicle. But you see them in real life and you realize the scale of them. And you're, it's almost like... Better still, better still is if you can see them moving around like under their own power. Because oh, be the sweet. ground shakes, man. It genuinely really? does. Yes. Oh, that's yes. So cool. You can feel them through the soles of your feet. And it's like, there's a sort of presence that it's, it's hard to get your head around from just looking at photos or even seeing movie clips oh, of them and stuff like that's that. That's so neat. As a Canadian, we have like three tanks, so I don't get to see them often. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> Ah, well, now, if you knew you were World War II, you'd know the Canadians built many, many tanks. Oh, we did, and we were the original... And ships. Um, we're, we're the original stormtroopers, right? That name came from uh, Canadians, because we held the line. Is it? I've never heard that yeah. before. Yeah, oh, I, I would have to look up yeah. the actual thing, but there was... Um, uh, there was a line that was being held, and there was like a section that had Canadians. There was another side that had 
uh, the French and a few others. And those lines started falling back just from the pressure and the Canadians who were actually mm. outgunned and outmanned were the only mm. group that actually gained ground during that whole time. <laughs> and ever after that, I think that was a situation where all of a sudden they're like, oh yeah, you know, you guys are like stormtroopers because you're just storming those trenches and you just keep on getting further and further and further against all odds. And I, I, I always thought that was kind of a cool part of uh, Canadian military history, which we don't really learn about military stuff in our schooling as much. Mm. So it was really fascinating no. to hear about. Yeah, <laughs> big big role in World War II. And I'd, I'd advise any Canadian to read up on the role in World War II. Mm-hmm. Saved our butts in the UK, I can tell you. So, <laughs> true. Yeah. Um, I completely got off base now. What was I talking about? Oh, yes, uh, Codexes. Write yeah. and write an army books. Uh, yeah, from, again, working at Games Workshop, it was just a continuous um, factory oh. churning out products. Yeah. And writing army books was one of those things where people would grab the one they they wanted to do and Mm -hmm. then look at the pile of other ones and try and figure out who else would do those for them. Um, So there there was nothing particularly unusual about going like, oh, Andy's got some kind of like empathy for uh, doing a Soviet book. They'll throw it at him and see if he wants to do it. (laughs) it That's that's Um, And subsequent to that, yeah, I did some some more supplements. I did Empire of Flames, Empires in Flames, which is about the Far East, yeah. uh, Japan, China, Burma, all that sort of stuff. And I did um, Ostfront, which is more about the, the Eastern Front, some extra units for that, and different theatre selectors and stuff like that. So, yeah, I did do some bolt action stuff, but I don't think of it as being my system at all. I just did some supplemental work for it, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Uh, Did, which was a lot of fun. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I got to use some like, excessive number of World War II books for good calls for once. Uh, out of curiosity, what was your first uh, game that you could honestly say was like your rule set? Do you have that one I wrote when I bust my leg and I was laid up for uh, a year? It was called Firepower. And it was a sci fi game kind of loosely based on hammer slammers yeah um in the all the weaponry was like two centimeter this and three centimeter that all energy weapons and stuff like that um and it was kind of written with what was in the asgard miniatures range for sci-fi models at the time mm-hmm. um, so there were bugs as well oh, neat. and it was it had some decent basis, but it, it was kind of based off some Vietnam rules that we used to play at the mm. time, uh, which is where the term firepower came from. Because they, they did things by... Basically, because you, you're trying to shoot people in a jungle, you basically just picked a frontage for how how wide an area you wanted to fire across. Yeah. And added up all the firepower going into it and kind of like divided up and that gave you a chance of hitting what was in the area. And it, it kind of worked off that idea. Huh. Um, which That's is kind of interesting point. in itself uh, and very good for jungle warfare in some ways too yeah. Um, but yeah I, I can't speak to the best The best story actually about firepower is it, it was all handwritten yeah. because again remember this is like 1988 we're talking about <laughs> it was all handwritten and just like um, 
in one of these kind of like wallet folders with like plastic sleeves so mm-hmm. you can put the pages in. Quite chunky. I'd written a lot. <laughs> and I managed to leave it on the bus. Oh. Uh, there's sort of like one existent example of it ever. And, you know, you'd have to rewrite the end of like months of writing. And I left it on the bus, lost it. Oh. And someone, and again, you can think, this is 1988, so your options are limited. And I actually put up some little posters at the bus stop in vain hopes saying, I lost this sort of thing, and I live here, because, again, yeah. no thought about personal security back then. And a couple of lads showed up at my door, and they'd found it on the bus. Oh. God bless them. And they brought it back to me. Wow, that's lucky. So they had read it as well and enjoyed it. So, oh, really? You know, I them, yeah. <laughs> is, is by any chance, that is that game still in circulation today, or is there any way to find that? It was never that? published. Ah. Uh... No, it was never published. I, I don't even know what happened to that set of rules in the fullness of time. Um, I just disappeared somewhere along the way, unfortunately. It, it, in some ways, I wish I could find it now. In some ways, I'm happy I can't. Because <laughs> <laughs> I guarantee you it's bad. Plus, I probably can't read my own handwriting at this point. Oh, God, I, I have the same issue. Uh, I, I inherited my mother's handwriting, which is uh, illegible to everyone but the person who wrote it, so... I, I know that feeling. A doctor. <laughs> I should be a doctor. Unfortunately, I'm not focused mm. enough. <laughs> <laughs> so, out of curiosity, when you're uh, designing a game, what can, what do you think like kind of comes first? Do you think it's more important to put more focus on the narrative or on the mechanics when you first start out? That's a very tough question to answer because they're they're so hand in hand to each other. To me, the narrative should be what dictates your mechanics yeah. to a large extent. Like, we talked about Drop Fleet, okay. Narratively, it's a spaceship game. Yeah. Uh, and it's a spaceship game about trying to land guys on planets. So, ergo, your mechanics should support that. Yeah. Yeah. Because you don't want to be fighting against your mechanics in your narrative. That's not good. They, they should work together. That said, though, the kind of the mechanics of how I might handle um, drop fleet, I'd kind of come up with them independently because of a different game, Battlefield yeah. Gothic, because I had considered the three levels thing back then. But like I say, I couldn't see a point to it because as soon as you take away ground gravity, you're not getting a lot out of it. Mm-hmm. So to that extent, you know, there was a mechanic already floating around in the back of my head in regard to spaceship games. It's yeah. just it actually mated very well in this case, with the narrative of landing guys on a planet's surface. <sighs> so, bit chicken and egg, really, which one came first uh, it... in that particular case. Okay, that's interesting. Um... I guess one way to look at it is, like, as a designer, you, sh- you should, hopefully, always have a lot of different mechanics floating about in the yeah. back of your mind. Once you come up yourself, more often ones you've seen and want to steal off other people, maybe yeah. change slightly along the way. Um, and as you get, um, you know, a brief or you talk to the person who wants to make a game or you want to make a game yourself or what have mm. you, you need the narrative. What are we doing with these mechanics first? Like if you're going to cook a meal, you need to know what meal you're going to cook before you start worrying about the ingredients. Yes. Yeah. And mechanics are, I think push comes to shove. Mechanics are more like that. It's like, you know, when I open up my drawer of ingredients, what have I got? 
So if you're ever in a point where you, you've got like, I've got a single brilliant mechanic, you're probably starting from a bad place, is the yeah. truth. Because then you're going to try and make a narrative. And only, there, there are games, plenty of games to do that. I, sh- I shouldn't be down on them, actually. Where they take a core mechanic and say, yeah. you know, this is the core mechanic. And they build a narrative around it. Mm-hmm. That's perfectly valid, too. It's not how I work, but there's nothing wrong with it. Oh, that's... That, I, I've never actually heard of the, the the kitchen analogy. That's that's a really good way to kind of oh, put it. Oh, it gets better. I've got Ooh, a better kitchen, the kitchen do analogy. Tell. You can have a sip of coffee first, or tea, if you... Uh, like first. <laughs> oh, no, no, Alright. <clears throat> Games design mechanics, some people will tell you it's all just mathematics at the end yeah. of the day. And games design is just maths. There was a, a guy at Blizzard who, who loved to tell me that just because he knew it annoyed me. Um, <laughs> and the, the analogy that applies here is that well, you need to know the difference between cooking and baking, first of all. Mm-hmm. Baking, if you're baking something, there is a formula to follow. Yeah, it's like chemistry, basically. You put in X, you put in Y, you put in Z, put it in for X amount of time, this temperature, this will happen. That's the way that baking is supposed to work. You get a cake, you get a souffle, whatever. Yeah. Cooking, cooking a meal um, or a dish is kind of different. It's a, far more like I am going to take this particular selection of ingredients, put them together in this way to try and evoke this particular flavor. But there's a lot of variability within that. There's a lot of gut feeling, personal taste, and so on about how you do that. So to me, design, games design, pure games design, if you will, is more like cooking than it is like baking. Because while you you can take your, your baking, you take your recipe and so forth, it's very difficult to explore within that space without things going horribly wrong. Uh, and most of the times, if you try to do that, and try to explore through baking, it yeah. will not turn out well. Yep. But if you're cooking, and you're simply adding flavours, adding spice, adding yeah. more meat, what have you, it's a lot, lot easier to make a game that way. Now, you will never get the direct, beautiful, sort of like Christmas of you baking a cake yeah. That way you will get a meal. But honestly, um, I'd even go as far as to say that that branch of gaming, as it were, is far more the card game, board games route. Hmm. Baking is what I mean, where you can do things in a certain way um, because you can control the parameters a lot more easily. Once you get in tabletop gaming, it is a lot like my, more like trying to serve people a meal because oh. they're looking to have a hearty meal, do different things with it uh, that extend outside the basic parameters of like, I have given you a cake. Does that make sense? That does My make extended sense. cooking analogy. That, <laughs> that does make actually a lot of sense. And so okay, we'll of, get on to the one about text later. Yeah, so huh, shit. That's some things to think about. Um, so especially when you're working with uh, Free League and the uh, Mutant Year Zero, where you're making a war game out of uh, out of well a role playing game. So how did you how did you manage the cooking and the baking when it seemed like because you had to almost bake the cooked dish in a sense? <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. What you're doing there is you, you've got some pre made ingredients. Basically, um, yeah. we want 
potatoes, we want Swedes, we want carrots, we want meat. Because, as I said to you uh, before you started recording, wasn't it? Yeah, they, they sent me the books for the role-playing game so I could have a read through them. Um, yeah. So I, I know of apocalypse-style settings from my youthful adventures um, in the wasteland, in Aftermath and things like that. So, and it's got a really strong flavour to it already. Already there. There's a lot of character already there. And in that case, it's simply working out where the narrative is exactly for a skirmish game. And most of that's already been told um, mm. what you're going to do. After that, what mechanics do we use? Um, different designers have got their, their different ingredients. They like, <laughs> it, like more and less. I like dice pools as a way of doing things. Uh, I think it mitigates the iniquities that you can get from single dice rolls. Uh, and it also means that you can handle modifiers more easily because you just roll more or less dice for modifiers instead of worrying about changing the outcomes mm. on the dice. So I like dice pools. And lo and behold, um, the system they already use for the role-playing game uses dice pools. Yeah. More than that, it uses dice which have got some extra symbols on them so you can basically do things like weapons malfunctioning and you know psychic powers going haywire yeah. on you and things like that. This is already baked into their role-playing game. So, obviously, like you say, you steal things uh, wholesale. So, yeah. so brilliant. We, we have our dice mechanics already worked out for us. And there's always a good argument for doing that because a, a large number of your players who are going to take an interest in that tabletop skirmish game are ones that are already play or are at least aware of the role-playing game. Mm -hmm. So give them a set of dice mechanics that they're already comfortable with. Brilliant. Half my work here is already done, really. <laughs> And beyond that, you just got to work out activations, actions, interactions, and so forth, and you're off to the races. Mm. Uh, but the other thing that came through very strongly um, from looking at the Mutant Year Zero stuff was the the character of you know the wasteland that they have, yeah, and the dangers thereof, and you know sometimes it's just mysterious and spooky, but sometimes there's there's real critters out there and so forth, which is the kind of thing we used to play around with in Necromunda. Back in the day for 40k, you know, there's hive critters and stuff like that. And we never had a great methodology for introducing them into games apart from, like, oh, hey, you can have these in games. <laughs> apart from using like a, a card based system that we've yeah. done at one stage. So I thought about that and I was like, hmm. So what we can do is like have an activation system um, based on cards, was my original proposal. We've got cards in for the different characters, yeah. um, and then you've also got cards in which are for potential hazards popping up. You know, oh, you managed to run straight across an old unexploded gas mine or something like that. <laughs> um, in the end, we want tokens instead. Same difference yeah. overall, and it's it's a nice little thing because it, it means every time you put your hand in the bag, you're sort of like. Ooh, I don't know what's going to be coming out of here. <laughs> but equally, because, you know, it's a random event, in effect, it, it can um, either make things worse for you or it might make things worse for your enemy or it might make things better for you as well. There are some good ones in there too. So there was a whole extra sort of like narrative thread that yeah. came in just because of the environment, which was very suitable and uh, I think does a lot to help flavour the game. One of the things the guys uh, for Ilgan, uh, Nils and that lot were very keen on was this this idea that you would be hunting for salvage yeah. as part of the game, you know, going and turning over markers and things like that. Uh, so they they had a, a a few different sort of like mechanics that they already they already wanted, uh, hmm. which again 
just made my life a lot easier. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. No, that that that's really cool. Um, so something you mentioned a little bit earlier that uh, I actually thought was kind of really interesting, and since I would love to get your insight, so you you said that like because war games came actually before tabletop RPGs, but you said that RPGs expanded further quicker. Was was that what you said? Earlier? Yeah, yeah, really, because um, huh. there were a number of businesses that kicked off TSL most notably. Yeah. Um, in the late seventies through the eighties, yeah. uh, and Games Workshop Citadel itself, which grew very rapidly indeed. Uh, you know, because the, the war games market was there and it continued on, and it kind of expanded over that period too, but nowhere near the same sort of speed and scale that hmm. we saw from um, the role playing market. Huh. Um, D D was seismic at the time, oh. absolutely seismic. It's, it's hard it's... to imagine. Well, maybe it's not, but there was just such a dearth of things like it around, yeah. uh, and its success basically generated a lot of other game systems that were kind of more realistic and things oh, like yeah. that as well, stuff like Chivalry and Sorcery. And a number of companies in the US, particularly, started um, developing their own systems and selling role playing systems as well. So yeah, out of virtually nowhere role playing just blew up as this major force through the 70s and 80s and eventually that that sort of like success i think people who were looking at the war games market looking at the tabletop industry as well which was all chugging along and so forth were like you know is there a way to try and make that happen on the tabletop side of things a bit more too um or just gain confidence that that kind of thing could succeed as a business. Because, let's say, publishing, even publishing books back then was was a fairly big commitment of time and money to make it happen. Uh, not easy. Mm-hmm. To take that a sort of step further and, and manufacture metal figurines, let alone plastic ones even further, was, again, you, you're getting onto like serious money, like industrial money. Yeah. So... Well, there were a lot of like smaller companies with a few casting machines and stuff like that, uh, especially in the UK, especially around Nottingham, ironically, the lead belt, as we call it. There weren't any big companies doing it, uh, particularly. Oh, okay. And outside guess, of stuff like Airfix, where it was more model kits. Yeah, it was just games. a lot more of a smaller scale. So, was I guess during your time at Games Workshop, you kind of saw almost the birth of the modern kind of like war game uh experience of what it is today right like since they were one of the first like they well they are the biggest but they were one of the first uh i would say international games that really any like me in canada i would have heard about it what was that like being there during that time Exciting times, really. I mean, we we were working so hard, um, like constantly beavering (laughs) along. We didn't look up too much from our desks on that kind of a level. And and also there wasn't that much interconnectivity either. We wrote our articles, we published our magazine, you know, we wrote books and games and they went out to retail. We we might hear a little bit about like, oh, really, that was popular or we didn't sell at all. But overall, we were just doing what we were doing and churning it out. Um, the big growth, the really big growth, if I'm honest, for Games Workshop came, well, it came, kind of came in two stages. The first was that idea of the big box game, 
that I touched, touched on with Adeptus Titanicus, which they continue to do with other games. Obviously, we did big box games through the 90s, um, two of them a year at one stage. And they got Games Workshop into lots of different places because suddenly instead of a product range, which is like, oh, yeah, you just need to stock these 24 blisters and this pamphlet, it was a box they could put on the shelf, sell the whole box. Mm. And that was very that went down very well, particularly once we did uh, 40K second edition. After Road Trader, we did the first big box version of 40K. Yeah, uh, and that was huge, absolutely massively popular. I remember them saying at the time that they were going to print forty thousand copies because they thought it was funny, <laughs> and it had, they were reprinting it like within a week or two, which was unheard of. Wow! Uh, at the time, because it just it just flew out, absolutely flew out. So there was that. First of all, was the products, uh, and a lot of credits there for to Rick Priestley, who had a, a very clear vision and kind of pushed mm. that forward. Uh, the big box games and the, the Codex Army books and the supplements and so forth. So it got us a good schedule that we could all work behind. And White Wolf constantly supporting it all as well. And the other one was the the expansion of Games Workshop stores, which it didn't hit in America uh, or Canada until later, but certainly in the early 90s through the UK, mm-hmm. we'll get to the point of like there was a town in every store, sort of thing, every high street had a Games Workshop. Yeah, uh, and it started getting really big around that time. And it, yeah, they were in a situation where whenever they'd open a store, it would instantly make the company more money. Basically. Wow! So they were popping out stores <clears throat> all over the place. Did the how like did the culture change quite dramatically as like they started becoming more and more profitable? Like it sounds like at first it was, and I I use this more of a lovingly term but it sounds like a bunch of nerds who are just loving what they're doing and once you get more and more kind of cash flow into a business it tends to change uh the atmosphere all by necessity but how how did the cultures mm. change as the years went on with you working there oh yeah it changed enormously i mean it, it's very easy for me to look at it in in terms of like where we were living in studios at the time like mm-hmm. the initial thing in Enfield Chambers for the first two or three years I think we were there um, yeah it was it was very chaotic yeah extremely chaotic very busy all the time um, but yeah we were all just like charging along doing our own thing to a large extent um, but with a bit of oversight from but uh, we moved to a, a different studio on Castle Boulevard in Nottingham mm-hmm. uh, after that uh, which was a, a much nicer space. It was a much more open space because literally, like Enfield Chambers, was like a couple of corridors, like three corridors laid on top of each other with like little rooms off each one. No, the top floor was big, but everything else was just like this warren, basically, uh, which was kind of interesting in its own right. But it didn't promote much communication. Uh... Open plan office did that, and it also made us much more annoyed with each other all the time, of course. Um, but that that's when we really hit full stride. Mm-hmm. was at um, Castle Boulevard largely for the next, I think, four years we were there. Uh, and then after that, we moved on to the GW main site where Warhammer World is and all that now in Lenton. Uh, and the studio moved en masse there. So factory, studio, everything all on one site. And as you might imagine, yes, there were quite some changes with each of those moves, mm-hmm. which kind of reflected the larger changes in the uh, the company as a whole. Yeah. Huh. 
Interesting. That's a good non-answer for you. <laughs> no, 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 no. It, it, it's kind of interesting. Like, I've, like, a little bit of sides. I'm in school myself for logistics and all that kind of style stuff. Um, and it, it's really fascinating hearing about the growth. So for a non-answer, it was very knowledgeable. <laughs> um, and recently, like, earlier you said that you felt like the games at games workshop were, were starting to feel a little stale in uh their approach w- what was the what exactly was did you mean by that just out of curiosity if you don't want to answer that totally fine um i've forgotten the context in which i said it to be honest uh we were place. talking about how before they had you know uh titanicus they had lack of diversity in systems to be fair games which has re-diversified itself but mm-hmm. through things like kill team now uh and necromunda and the specialist games so it's not completely absent um it's just kind of shifted focus okay. but there was a period um about when i left games workshop when all it was was Warhammer 40k, Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Nothing else. Uh, and I felt we lost something during that period. Uh, and then just to sort of like, you know, look wider, do better, think more things. Okay. Just into the churn of like, do things for these three main systems. And that was um, a logistics issue as mm-hmm. much as anything else. The problem with doing all these wildly diverse other games, all our Necromundas, our Gorkamorks, and things like that, is like, there literally wasn't shelf space to to stock multiple different games with yeah. their own attendant miniature ranges. There wasn't time to carry on designing uh, new miniatures for games oh, like that and okay. stuff, so that they would eventually get, you know, they'd, they'd burn brightly for about six months and then be dropped off the schedule because that was the reality. There wasn't yeah. any possibility of doing anything different, or so we were told. Um, so that sort of like led to a shift to just emphasizing the core games, okay. uh, doing new editions of the, of the core games uh, more frequently than we had before, which started to feel very much just like, like retreading the same things over mm-hmm. and over uh, as a designer for me personally. No, I, that, that totally makes sense. You can't, you, you can't focus on a singular project for so long before eventually it starts to feel stale. I no, I definitely. Mm. I think that's true as an individual, but as yeah. a business, no, that's not true at all. Oh, as a business, you can't. No, no, no. I agree. 100% yes, on as that. a business, you you actually need to serve your your existing customers. <laughs> you can, all this sort of stuff. So yeah, it's one of those things, and it, you talked about how uh, companies change over time, as the, particularly as they grow more successful mm-hmm. uh, and become larger. Interestingly, when I, when I left Games Workshop and went to Blizzard, I, I saw the same thing in action there where they had been a smaller, tighter team, and they were in the midst of this massive expansion, which is why they got me in. Yeah. Like, oh, hey, let's just ship over that Andy guy. He's not <laughs> got a job at the moment. It's like, okay. <laughs> um, because WoW was doing so well for them at the time. They, they just had almost literally more money than they knew what to do with. Yeah. It was just ridiculous compared Exploded. to anything they'd done before. And they'd, they'd done really well previously, you know, software design studios go they had a really good track record that has great successes with a number of games including starcraft oh yeah but wow had just like redefined success for them to a large extent uh, and that's what happens as companies grow you know what is a success becomes redefined 
mm-hmm. um, because what a company needs as a success is not necessarily even what individuals like you or me or anybody else would say is a success. So uh, your parameters do shift quite a lot. Yes. Oh, no doubt. Now, how, how did how did you actually get in contact with Blizzard to work on like Starcraft? Like that's it seems it seems very almost kind of polar opposite in the sense of like i i get you're working with a with a sci-fi setting but you're going from tabletop to video games i feel like that it's such a far degree of change between it how how did you get how did you get involved how did you get in contact like this i need to know these questions Uh, (laughs) they need to know people need to know Uh. I, I I was I was always intrigued, interested um, in PC games in mm-hmm. particular, my Amiga of all things. Um, through the nineties, you know, yeah. I used to diddle around with them a little bit at home, in between painting models and things like that, and doing other things, because uh, I was fascinated by them, absolutely fascinated, because they offer that opportunity, as I saw it, to do so much more than you can do with a tabletop. You know, you can actually give things sounds and animations, and they handle all sorts of stuff. Uh, yeah. like fog of war and randomization and they can su- subsume all kinds of systems within the game and whenever you're playing a tabletop game basically your brain is the computer you know you are your own cpu yeah um so that idea that you could entirely sort of take that part of having to work things out out of people's hands mm-hmm. and they can just concentrate on playing the game um i had a great deal of of i don't know empathy towards that concept because for me mechanics should be ideally so smooth that they're kind of almost in the background mm-hmm. um, you play your game the mechanics do their thing and so forth but you're not really thinking about the numbers so much as what's purportedly happening and it seemed to me like computer games had a, a direct line to that mm-hmm. in effect by the, the way that they work by the, the very intrinsic construction so I was kind of really interested in them. And after Games Workshop, yeah, I didn't really have a plan uh, at all. I did all around. I did some freelance stuff. Uh, I did a Starship Troopers miniatures game, which was hilarious because it was <laughs> the first time I'd done like a, a non-D6-based 40K-style game in 14 years. <laughs> so I went mad with that. But it was I wasn't earning anywhere near enough money, basically, <laughs> doing stuff like that. Um, trying to find my way freelancing for the first time is tough. So I also had a very uh, young new wife who was American and who mm. moved to the UK to live with me and was not enjoying being in the UK at all because yeah. it's a tough transition. Um, so I wrote a couple of letters, actually, is what I did, to Relic and to Blizzard because they both had good reputations. I liked what they did and said, Hey, my name's Andy Chambers. I worked for 14 years at Games Workshop and I'm looking to do something else now. Yeah. Would you be interested in talking to me? And they both were. God bless them. Um, and eventually I, I took the gig at Blizzard um, rather than Relic because they, they both offered me something as well. Which just goes to show, folks, um, people are watching. Yeah. Because they knew who I was. Yeah, They'd okay. seen me in White Dwarf Plenty and read my games and played some of them and things like that as it turned out when i got to meet them they were a lot of them were you know quiet 40k nerds or something like that <laughs> so they they were absolutely prepared to give me a shot and they did blizzard oh, gave me a shot for four cool. years and in that time i found out i knew nothing about making 
video games. <laughs> I learned some things about it. God bless them. And they were very patient with me. But yeah. ultimately, it wasn't um, something I could transition into, not into a, a really experienced team like they were. Because mm-hmm. um, they'd done, you know, Starcraft before and Brood War and all the rest of it together. And they really knew their business. And I was just a complete nub. Yeah. So I made my contributions, you know, uh, I was actually creative director for a while and then took lead writer on Wings of Liberty, I'll squeeze that out. But uh, I ended up basically freelancing again after that, as I realized, like, hmm, actually, I think my skill set is in writing games and books like I have been doing for the past 14 years, not in trying to be a writer and creative director on a video game. Uh, it was a lot of fun, and I met some lovely people doing it, and they were great to me, but it wasn't for me in the long term. But it was a great experience, and in its turn, because I learned a bit more along the way uh, in terms of freelancing, I do do freelancing on digital projects as well. You know, uh, write scripts. I did the Necromunda game, Road Factor did a little while ago, wrote the script for that and stuff like that. Oh, neat. Uh, also worked with Thomas Birinin, uh from back in the days of yore. Games Workshop Studio because he's gone into digital gaming in a big way since then. Oh, really? Need for Speed and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he's really well steeped in it. He lives back in Finland and he, he's been working with. He's got his own game going with him, actually, of course. He's got his own studio going. Um, digital games are different things, so I, I get work off him as well. I work with oh, that, him on various things. That's that's really cool. So. Do you have any um, any projects in the work coming up or anything that you're just, even just a passion projects that you're working on right now? Anything? Um, yeah, I'm, I've actually been busy over the last couple of years. Most of my time's been dedicated to a new project that we're going to be announcing at Adepticon Ooh. this year, uh, which is a tabletop game. I don't know how much I should actually say other than that beforehand. <laughs> but... It, Basically, if people are interested, if people enjoyed the old kind of like second edition 40k, that style of game, it's it's one that's pointed at them fairly pointedly, actually. Um, and it's basically because a guy who also enjoyed great success in his own way mm. has reached a point in his life where he's gone like, you know what I want to do? I want to fulfill my lifelong ambition of making a tabletop miniatures game. And I'm really <laughs> happy to help him out. And uh, I've hooked in Gav Thorpe as well, because we, we've worked together now on a number of different games um, yeah. after Games Workshop uh, through Warlord Games, who do bolt action, because they've also done 2000 AD games. And we're, 2000 AD, uh, to give some background, is a comic that's been published uh, in the UK. You can probably get it in the States and Canada mm. as well. Uh, but it's been published as a weekly comic. Get this, weekly comic since i don't know i was a kid the 70s and it's still going strong judge dread is from there uh, you've probably heard of the character judge dread before now but and gav the same you know he was reading them in the schoolyard like i was so basically we got to make some games about these comic book characters we've been reading about in comics since we were kids and uh, that's been tremendous fun absolutely tremendous and great artwork as well of course oh, yeah? the advantage to doing comic games as we found it's like oh wow so if i need a piece of art for something it's somewhere in these like 400 issues it'll be there <laughs> and so on and it's doing cars and stuff really easy so we had a lot of fun doing those together and he's working together with me on this new game we're going to announce at adepticon oh. uh, as well 
he's doing background, but I'm doing rules. Um, so we've got hopes for that, actually. it's It's been a lot of fun working on that. But it is very much we're building absolutely from the ground up. So uh, oh, we'll see how we get on. That's got to be exciting. The other though. thing that I've got... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's been great. Um, yeah. <laughs> Although we are literally on that point of like talking about logos and packaging design. Um, <laughs> the other the other thing that I do with World Games is um, Blood Red Skies, which is a World War Two. <laughs> Snuck back in again there, <laughs> uh, like mass fighter combat game. Because one one of the things is coming out from the seventies and eighties and wargaming as it was then. I've got some scars from them, and one of them is about um, playing games, basically yeah. playing games where you know they all tend to be. Oh, I'll I'll check my altitude and I'll, I'll pre-plot my movement and you know, mm-hmm. zounds if I manage to get onto your tail, I'll shoot you up. And I spent a, a year or so after I left Games Workshop, actually, supposedly freelancing, uh, playing a game called World War Two Online, which um, is, is basically like a, a mass simulator game where you can get in your tank simulator and go and fight men doing their mm-hmm. men simulators. And there are fighters and bombers in it as well. So, you know, part one, if you want to fly, you have to kind of learn how to fly, in effect, of like, you know, flaps and getting your engine pitched to the right thing and all the yeah. rest of it and locking your tail wheel before you take off. Uh, and then you get shot out of the sky where people have been doing it for years. And <laughs> you gradually learn how to not get out of the shot sky and maybe occasionally get to shoot someone else and maybe occasionally a while after that shoot somebody else down. Um, so I flew for about a year with the Luftwaffe, with the virtual Luftwaffe, and I can fly a BF-109 and I can fly a Stuka and I can fly an ME-110, sort of. <laughs> But it's to do all that, um, basically, like I say, you have to learn to fly. And one of the pieces of advice you used to get on the forums is like, uh, read Fighter Combat, put it over on my shelf somewhere, <laughs> um, which is a book basically which was written by the Top Gun School, guys at the Top Gun School. It's a real thing. It's not just a movie with Tom Cruise in it. <laughs> and they put together all, all the lessons they could learn about you know, the science of air combat. Um, both piston engine fighters and guns, and then later moving on to jets and missile-based combat. Mm-hmm. Because it's a world where physics is king overall. You know, you can go high, that's all well and good. You go down, you go faster, you go up, you go slower, that kind of thing. And the whole process of manoeuvring yeah. is about understanding that and, and making that work to your advantage, yeah? Through that, I started to think back on those tabletop games of yore that I'd played, um, stuff like Blue Max and things like that. And it's like, my experiences in the air, having learned these things and got into dogfights, were not that. There was nothing about pre-plotting or anything like that. Yeah, It was instinctive, it was fast, it was aggressive. Um, you know, man and plane as one was when you work the best. So uh, I wanted to make a system that narratively felt a bit more like that. The other thing is that when I read a lot of, there was a couple of years when I was up in Seattle after Blizzard, when I was freelancing, there was a used bookshop down the, down the hill, which had a great variety of World War II, um, like biographies, yeah. biographies and things like that for ace pilots. And I assiduously read through them all. So these are the guy's own accounts of, fighting in the air combat and again there there was nothing very clinical or 
sometimes they, they would pl plan a maneuver before executing it yes but once that was done it was all everything was up in the air tits up pretty mm -hmm. much and it was on to the instinctual stuff again and i wanted a game that felt more like that and one day when i was in seattle my friend ryan took me down to beth's diner and we had some greasy food and he, he said if you could invent a game for yourself what would you what would you do what would you make as a game for yourself which is a question i'd never been asked because not since firepower basically had i written a game for myself yeah. um everything since then had been too brief for a reason so i was like huh and it kind of came together that i'd been thinking about fighter combat games i've been thinking about three levels of um, that 3d idea yeah. as well about having three levels and it kind of all came together and i said oh, i'll do this sort of thing and that was the genesis of bright and blood red skies which is I still believe my best games design to date. Really? It's simple, it's elegant, it actually reflects air combat surprisingly well, you know, to a fine degree of accuracy mm. overall, given that all games are, at the end of the day, an abstraction of what's actually happening, because yeah. sure, shooting guns at each other, you're not shooting guns at each other, really. But it, it does a good job. It does a good job, and it's massively simple to teach people as well, which is one, one of the things that I always think of as being a good sign for a game. Is it like if you can teach someone to play it like within a few minutes, then you're off to a good start. Mm -hmm. And if once you've taught them to play, they start playing and then go like, huh? And have those <laughs> light bulb moments. Yeah. Of like, I see how I can screw you over now, and things like that. You know, you're in a really good place. And Blood Red Skies has done that really straightforwardly so that's why i say i think it's my strongest design and that's an ongoing concern uh we did a, a new battle of midway starter set for that um good start of last year now and uh, there were a number of sort of like you know models and so on attached to that uh wool is in the process of putting more into resin now because we had metal for a while which is not ideal yeah that's what metals these guys are for Oh, these, are, these are resins. It's nice. a resin P40. They look good. Oh, they're really nice. This, this is one of the things as well. Um, 3D design come on so far. And with something like a World War II fighter, the specs exist. You know, yeah. literal plans of it exist. So rendering a 3D model of that, well, actually, it's not quite as simple as you'd think, but can be done. And then that could be 3D printed, and then you can cast it into resin or just, you know, use 3D prints. God damn you all, because that's the reason I'm not making enough money out of Blood Red Skies. <laughs> it is the blessing of the curse at the same time of, like, people can make their own Air Force overnight. Oh, so, God, I know. Uh, but it's a good little game. It's a good little game, and it, it's got a really dedicated community. Uh, I must put a shout out to those. Uh, the Leap Soup podcast, specifically. If you're interested in that and the Blood of Skies Ready Room I, on Facebook. I am definitely interested as somebody who has way too many models and likes to look at way too many rule sets. It is definitely something that yeah. I am going to Google and then the wife will get mad at me later for spending more money on something I don't need. But, you know, that that whole, <laughs> that whole uh, you know, shindig. <laughs> yes. Um, the process, as it's called. Oh yeah. So is there anything that you are playing right now? Are you in any tabletop games? Are you playing any war games on the regular? What uh what are you doing for fun in the with the hobby? Um I am 
role playing Friday nights um, in a campaign me and my friends have been playing in for. We're not quite sure how long at this <laughs> point. We think it's about twenty eight years. Seriously. <laughs> how I can't get so that's my Friday things. commitment. <laughs> Wait, yeah, wait. It's part of partly the longevity is why we still do it. I think oh, quite apart from anything else. But uh, no credit to my my GM on that one, the DM for it all, who you know puts together all the world and has regularly hosted his games at his house. How nice for umpty grump more than twenty, <laughs> certainly years, easily more than twenty, because he's been doing it since the late nineties. Did you advance and with the we, we have our little characters? Oh, hmm? oh no, uh, it's you... not D and D. Oh, oh! It's not D and D. Interestingly oh. enough, it is actually based on get this uh, a sort of like blend of root, chivalry and sorcery and role master. That's an old title. What? So what, both is it? Is very it, old titles. <laughs> so is it? Is it like a pretty much now like a homebrew system, or is has it just? Uh, Sort of, sort yeah. of, but no. There's a lot of like, basically, the the magic system from Rollmaster is is the core of where the magic comes from. So we are using literal Rollmaster spells, lists, and books, and so forth, and critical tables, and so yeah. on. But the stat system, yeah, is a homebrew from Chivalry and Sorcery uh, as a basis. So like the base stat lines come from mm-hmm. there, but some of how they're used and stuff like that is different. The skill system is different. The the chivalry and sorcery systems are like pretty much unplayable. <laughs> um, so there, there are a number of quality of life improvements on that front. No doubt, and even even you saying like, oh yeah, you know, it's a magic space off role master, and I'm like, I've looked at a role master book, and my eyes, literally, I, I at times I was like, okay, what am I reading again? That that's also a very <laughs> complicated system. That's that's a very technical Ooh. system. Oh. One of my complaints, I play a spellcaster, and one of my complaints is that I, I literally have like I don't know, a book like this thick. The spell I have two hundred and fifty plus individual spells. Um, which so yes, when I'm not perhaps Johnny on the spot, being able to remember which one to pull out first, and I do believe I require some forgiveness for that. And it's been the same characters that you've been playing, or have you have you had different mm. characters? Like no, no, been playing the same character throughout. Like they're legal to drink in almost in pretty much the entire world. <laughs> that character, like, ha- yes, it's true. <laughs> it, <laughs> Just how yes, I, I I'm, I'm trying to think how like that like it, it, right. it's really. I'll, cool. I'll give you an example like, of how it's dedication from the DM. Yeah, I can tell you that right here and now. When I moved to the US to work for Blizzard, mm-hmm. um. I was away, potentially, you know, forever. Yeah. He continued to send me character updates of like what happened weekly with the party through email. Okay, sometimes he, you know, wait and send every two weeks, but yeah. he kept me updated on what was happening again through uh, regular emails. And then when I came and visited home, like every six months to a year, I'd come yeah. back to the UK and visit my folk and stuff like that. And I'd go over to his place and we'd have an intense like, couple of days solo playing as well. To So my character was still doing things within the campaign, even though I was living at that time 6,000 miles away. <laughs> um, and I say, eventually, 2011, we, we actually moved back to the UK. I hadn't planned to, but my mum was very ill. It didn't sound like she had long to go. 
all this sort of stuff. Um, so we moved back and I kind of like, you know, rejoined the game at that point. Uh, but, I, you know, I'd already been doing stuff and had history all the way up to that point. You know, had some marvellous solo adventures. Actually, thank you very much. Go and cast back into the party. That is... Like, it, that's super cool. Like, I've never had a, se- a game last more than six sessions, and here you are with... I'm jealous. I, I don't know how, what else to say. I'm jealous <laughs> of that. That's I evoked your jealousy. A little bit jealous. I suppose, yeah. Wow. That's, I suppose, that's... yeah. Weekly sessions, if you say... We miss some occasionally. No. Um, so, 50 a, say 50 a year, because we're actually pretty good about it. Um, so, yeah, 20 years, 1,000 sessions. That is intense. <laughs> wow. That is, I, I'm not going to lie, Most I've never heard someone with a campaign that la- runs so long, and that is so freaking cool. I, I, you guys could write a book on it. You could write a book. <laughs> just so- we'll resist that temptation. <laughs> Uh, my friend who, who plays, uh, he 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 had a few years out as well. Uh, yep. but he didn't uh, keep a diary, but he's been keeping a diary through the whole thing. Yeah, that's so. That's... <laughs> yeah, he shares it with the DM, but not with the rest of us. Oh, uh, <laughs> that that that's super super cool. Uh, yeah. Um, so I got one final question for you here. Um, mm-hmm. If if someone is either trying to get into the industry or trying to write their own game, whether it be tabletop uh, RPGs or war games, what would be one bit of advice that you feel like would be the most important to give them? Do the second part first. As in, if you've got a yen to write a game of any description or even an adaptation of an existing game, it all counts. Do that. Do that a lot. Then ask people about getting into the industry trying to jump straight in um, I mean it could work I guess the biggest thing that struck me over the past because it like I said, I've, I've touched a few times on, on how more interconnected we all are mm-hmm. now in many ways it's much much easier to make an impact in the world now you can reach thousands of people easily easily very true um, tens of thousands without much effort. So it's it's much easier to get yourself out there in the world now, but at the same time, everyone else can do the same thing. So if you want to be in a position where you can go to a company and say like, oh, hey, you guys should give me a job, it's always good to have a portfolio of something, something you've worked on, whether it's cooperating with somebody else, something you've done off your own back, preferably all of the above. Mm-hmm. You know, work on that. Um, because otherwise you, you, you're kind of setting yourself up for disappointment because companies that can hire people, you know, they, they have a lot of people come to them who say, I would like to do stuff with you. Because <laughs> at the end of the day, we're, we're all not motivated by money. We're motivated by wanting to do it, by passion. Uh, so your passion is going to be up against everybody else's and whatever competence level you have, um, that counts for a lot as well. Of course, mm-hmm. what skills you have, that's huge. Particularly technical skills. Although perhaps I over, overrate them since I have none. <laughs> um, but yeah, you, you're in a field of many, so try and work on things that you can say, this is my own, or this is the thing I did, and so on. And like I say, it doesn't have to be 
100%. Oh, I came up with this brilliant idea. People think ideas are precious and valuable in themselves, and they're not. Yeah. People have ideas all the time. What counts is taking your idea and doing something with it, growing that seed into something more, showing people that you can grow a seed into something more. And I think that's what they caught when I did that first little article back in White Dwarf back in the day. It's like, oh, this guy gets it, basically. He, he can see what we've done. Yeah. And he's mimicked it to some extent. And, you know, he can do the numbers thing and we should give him a go because he gets it. And it, he's at least tried to integrate what we're doing with what he's done. Yeah. Something completely off the wall. So I, I think, and it, it's poor advice these days because I, I don't know, if I'm <laughs> honest, how you get a job doing the kind of thing that I do, except how I did it back in the day, which is, you know, it's like trying to put straw in your engine, really, because it's a different world now. But you can be in a position now where you can actually actually build up a system, build up some followers without being part of a company. Yeah. So consider that possibility uh, and make use of it. Use that fact that you, you can interconnect with so many different people and there's so many wonderful people out there willing to help, interested to get on board. It'll also introduce you to the horrors of working with other people, <laughs> which you need to be able to do if you're going to work in professionally in industry or what have you, you have to work with other people all the time. I'm mm-hmm. bad at it. That's why I freelance. But it's a skill that you have to learn as yeah. well, especially if it doesn't come naturally. And I'll be honest, a lot of the guys who are most into role playing or tabletop games, you know, let's be honest, social skills aren't necessarily our, our top flight. That's why we like to have rules for our interactions, mm-hmm. you know, be it role playing games or tabletop. So it's learning the rules for the other interactions, yeah, interactions, the social rules that go beyond that as well. Nice. So there you go. All of that. Why? Well, I gotta say, you can say, do it. Yeah, you can do it. Yeah, I'm. Mm, I have believe in much. yourself. You can do it. That's uh, that's very good advice. Um, I'd like to thank you so much for uh, joining me today. This has been honestly really fun. Uh, I've learned things that I didn't actually know. Uh, so yeah, this is, I thank you. Thank you very much, Andy, for hopping on and you're welcome back anytime you want. It, this has been fan freaking tastic. <laughs> yeah, my absolute pleasure. I, it'd be nice to come back to you and after Adepticon, which is March 22nd, I think it is. So I can talk to you about this new game that's coming yeah. out with a clear conscience. Uh, you can okay. definitely, uh, I, 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 I want models together and things. I would love for that to happen. I am very curious. You piqued my interest and just dangled it in front of me without being able to tell me anything. And it's, uh, I'm a, a slightly it's like obsessive. like a small pro, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I am slightly of an obsessive person. And when I can't gather that information, it's like something in my mind just is like, you can try and dig a little deeper. You can try and dig. A, it's like, but there's nothing out there right now. I know there isn't. But uh, again, Andy, thank you very much uh, to all the people listening. Uh, thank you very much for tuning in. I hope you guys enjoyed this. Uh, if you have any uh, questions for the next time Andy's on, put it in the uh, in the was it in the word? Wow, sorry, <laughs> I'm screwed. Moments. The comments below. How did I forget that word? Uh, put it in the comments below, Sorry, and I'll. Editing exists. Oh, God, I'm I'm getting used to this YouTube game. It's like the, I the first video is being posted out actually technically today, 
So it, it, it's yeah. exciting for myself. Uh, but yeah, thank you very much. Uh, you can either send me an email at uh, rpsmartpeople at gmail.com if you want to, if you would rather do it that way. Or if Twitter still exists by the time this video is up, you can send me a tweet on Twitter at rpsmartpeople at gmail.com. And any links that Andy would like to put in, I'll throw that in as well in the description. Thank you very much and have a great day. Bye.